Aquí comienza Sana Incertidumbre, un lugar donde no tener certezas no es una falta, es una oportunidad. Se parte, junto a Francisca Venegas y Sebastián Valdés, de una conversación sobre salud mental, autocuidado y mucho más. Hi everybody and welcome to Sana Incertidumbre, a podcast where we speak about mental health, also self-care and many other topics. I'm Sebastián Valdés. I'm here with Francisca Venegas. How are you, friend? What are we talking about today? So today we have a special guest that you're going to introduce in a little while. Okay. And we are going to talk about one of the words that is on our podcast title, that is uncertainty. Safe uncertainty, maybe a little bit of grieving and losses, but also creativity and what uncertainty can also give us. Exactly. So without... Uh, For Wait, the two, yes. yeah. <laughs> I will introduce our guest. He's Awen Mer. He's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist. He works with children, adolescents, and adults. He's also a father of two. He is 41 years old. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he's a musician. How are you, Owen? Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much, and I'm well. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself so people can get to know you better before we start the conversation? Yeah, I think one of the things that's like useful for, for people to know, the way my brain works is uh, not, it's a little odd. And so I can, I, you know, I work on this, but I often will kind of stake out a position, which is more extreme than I would believe, and then have people kind of argue me out of it um, as the way I, I learn about things uh, and try to like, I, I really like being challenged. And so if you don't know that up front, I can sound really kind of like certain about things. And really, I'm looking to like dig into the uncertainty by having the forward operating base of belief be further out than is really tenable. <laughs> and so it kind of pushed me around on that and, and it goes better. I'm wrong a lot, like a lot. And I, I like to think I'm getting better at being wrong every day and expecting that to happen. So I think as important as it is to kind of get the answer right, it's just as important to recognize that you might not have. And that's how I try to live my life with a degree of like, well, I'm, I, I, I got it. Ah, no, that wasn't right. There's a duality there. The grace with which you fall on your face is important. <laughs> Excellent. I would like to start with that. Your podcast is called Uncertainty, Anxiety, and Existential Despair. Yes, and yeah, remotely I possible. Remotely possible, colon, uncertainty, anxiety, and existential despair. Yeah, so. Well, I, I mean, you, you highlighted the important parts first, you know, what it's about. Um, and it started at the beginning of the pandemic. I've been, I've been obsessed with podcasting for years. I grew up listening to books on tape, old BBC radio dramas. So The Wind in the Willows, book on tape, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I've listened to a thousand times at least, The Lord of the Rings, etc. cetera. Uh, the old Bob and Ray show was it was a classic of my youth and when i you know realized well i record stuff i could make a podcast maybe uh i started trying to do that and actually my friend and now co-worker uh, amanda tinkleman said you know i have a friend who you should meet because he did some podcasting thing i think it was called radio lab and i'm like oh you mean my favorite show ever yeah, yeah no i'll meet your friend And uh, I met Michael Raphael, who was the senior producer on Radio Lab for about a year. And he taught me how the process worked. And I worked with a friend of his, Ben Adair, who's an also fabulous producer. And I really learned the craft of crafting a story and a narrative. And then through most of what I learned out the window when I did Remotely Possible, which started kind of quick and dirty at the beginning of the pandemic, trying to make some kind of weird 
travelogue time capsule, whatever the hell was going on. And so I have a, a bent towards like production value. And also I really appreciate a well-crafted story and a cold open. Um, I, I think stories have a power to communicate information in a way that's relevant to people, not just interesting. And so you can take every class about therapy and it won't be therapeutic, but you can hear a story about something that's relatable and learn the lesson quicker, similar to you. Yeah, and I think also in the pandemic, there was like a boom of podcasts. And I think a lot of people wanted to just share how they were feeling or maybe things that they have always been thinking. But like Ellie in our previous episode mm -hmm. said, like now we have more time with our thoughts because we were in firehouses. So now I was like, okay, what if I share this with the world? What would happen? Just, just see what happens. I don't know. No expectations. And I found myself at the epicenter of, of, of the uh, historical moment in New York City where uh, the pandemic really was the worst in the beginning here in the U.S. So, so how was that? How, you live in Brooklyn, New York, and you were in a very hard time. The United States is the most affected country in With the world Brazil. by the pandemic. Yeah. Half a million deaths. In New York, is getting worse lately. The um, variant, I don't know how you call it, the uh, yeah. strain, the New York, SARS, New, York yeah. New York strain. Every time it's getting rougher. So I would like to ask you, how was to be there and how the concept of uncertainty applied to that situation. So to begin with, I was wrong. I thought I was just going to get COVID and that was what was going to happen. I looked at the, the data on its spread and its R naught value, which is, you know, how fast, how communicable a thing is. I thought, look, it's just a matter of time till I get it. My wife, very early on, we spent a couple months in Connecticut at the beginning of the thing and she got it. I was sleeping next to her and spent a couple nights on the couch and somehow did not contract COVID-19 and now I'm vaccinated with the Moderna vaccine. So I somehow got through this whole time uh, rather cavalierly assuming not that I wasn't taking precautions, I absolutely was, but when I needed to go in to see a patient, I would. If science progressed so fast, I thought, you know, vaccine would be, and we have five in a year. Like, thank you, science. <laughs> I really appreciate all of you. Yeah. And also people was very um, suspicious about developing a vaccine so fast. And, and I think like there's a bit of science literacy, which is one of the things I try to address on, on the show I do, which is like, why do people believe things and what do they believe? Because it's confusing. Like if, you know, just being able to describe how an mRNA vaccine works requires you to know a bunch of stuff to be able to understand the explanation. And I think tolerating uncertainty is something people are bad at. They want a lot of certainty and it is in the interests of villains essentially to provide us with certainty that is not due yeah i was just remembering how the beginning of the pandemic was for me i was in london at the time i was living by myself i was studying a master's in family therapy and i remember hearing this news about italy and you're from italy so i was remembering that as well that it was chaos and i was thinking yeah but that's in italy it's not here and i remember how in three days my entire perception of COVID change when on Friday, I think it was like the 12th of March, our, uh, the manager of our master said, we are going to move everything online. I remember feeling wow. so scared about how lonely I was going to be. And I was like, please no, like I'd rather get COVID than feel alone and feel that I have no, no one to talk to or that I cannot interact with human beings. Mm -hmm. And then on Monday, I remember how I changed all my perception because I was thinking people are overreacting and I think a lot of people thought about that and then I was like no this is something serious and I remember something that changed was that I started talking with my parents they are both medical doctors as well 
um, they were seeing how severe it was from Chile, that actually in that moment was not serious. So I was like, okay, this is going to hit us hard. And I was just amazed by how fast my brain changed. And then when other people would tell me, no, it's just a flu, I was like, I understand why you think that. I thought about that. Now I think of something else. Yeah. The same with the vaccine and a lot of people. No, and here when the virus started on the 3rd of March last year, the government told us that we didn't even have to buy uh, masks, like face masks. So people were like walking around in public transport without masks or taking care of themselves until we started seeing the rise of the cases and then a massive lockdown blew us, blew our um, expectations of what 2020 was going to be. I think it was a very hard year for everyone. <laughs> and um, also, we wanted to talk about creativity because you have a music studio in your house. How that has represented, a, I don't know if a window or a way to uh, express yourself or also to um, take care of yourself, enjoy and have some time to uh, forget the pandemic or maybe uh, express those feelings that we have, um, we're, we're just inside of us. So how did your love of music start? Um, my, when I was 16 years old, I, I was in high school and in, in, here in the U.S. And my cousin gave me a gift. And the gift was a four-track cassette recorder. Now, my cousin is a professional audio engineer of some repute. Um, he is a mastering engineer with multiple Grammys. I started playing around with that four-track, and then it turns out my school had an eight-track analog tape studio. Because one of the Doobie Brothers, which is a rock group, went to my high school and donated it. And I spent basically the last two years of high school in that studio every goddamn second. I went to college in Massachusetts and there was a recording studio down the road where I spent again every second I possibly could. So your love for, for music started when you were in high school? But I was never a good musician, <laughs> unfortunately. I really loved music. I was you know, a huge fan of, of the music of the time, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, etc. And recording music was really exciting to me. But I wasn't a very good musician. And I realized there was a whole job, which was being the guy who does the recording of the music. And then when computers came along, you could edit stuff in a way that meant you didn't have to be very good. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a decent musician. I'm an okay bass player. I've been in many, many bands in my life. I used to play jazz music pretty seriously. But making other people's music come to life was always the most exciting part. And so my first job out of college was actually at Sony Music Studios in New York, working with Beyonce and Jay-Z and, as you know, the peon. But doing that work of being an assistant engineer and learning a craft. And I wanted to leave for something less punitive and difficult, so I went to medicine. Excellent. Maybe that, now that you mentioned medicine, I would like to speak about that. You're a medical doctor, you're a psychiatrist. Very much so. You're working with a lot of people, helping people to care for mental health. In the middle of a pandemic, in a moment where every day that passes, mental health becomes more critical, maybe for government, a couple of weeks ago, Japan created uh, oh, yeah. the uh, Department of loneliness. of loneliness. I love that. Yeah. The first question is, how has been your experience working with people in mental health during the pandemic? And what do you think is going to be the future of mental health for the world? Now, my answer is going to be a little US specific, but I'll try to make it uh, applicable globally. I think, first off, I am a medical doctor who practices the medical subspecialty of psychiatry, which is medicine. Right, so I'm not in the mental health space. I'm in the mental illness space pretty firmly. 
right? People don't go to a trauma surgeon and say, so in the surgery space, and assume they have anything to say about it, right? So I work with, uh, as a psychiatrist, primarily people who nothing else has helped. And I'm a pediatric subspecialist and a subspecialist in chronically suicidal and high-risk individuals who have not meaningfully responded to prior treatment. So I see a subset of people who are not who people are generally talking about when they say, let's talk about mental health. Because when they come to see me, it's because mental health is the furthest thing from their mind and it's, you know, life or death and a deeply ambivalent conversation thereof, that is at issue. So there are people who are really sick and they are sick in ways that are in their mind. And that's different from kind of the general squishiness of mental health. Not that that's not important for everybody to maintain some sense of mental health, just like you'd want to have some sense of physical health. These things are related. We have a neck. They're all connected. (laughs) And it makes sense to do things that keep your health intact. I also think that the lack of precision brought to the space by activity, frankly, people who want to change the future of mental health want to solve easy problems on average. And they don't get input from psychologists or physicians as often as they should. And they will, you know, take kind of a, well, here, what's a solvable problem? Not what's a big problem? How do we solve it? I have a solution. Let's go find a problem. Um, And I have a lot of people with a lot of problems. And I don't even know that mental health problems make so much sense to people. Problems make sense to people. What are your problems? You'll get a very different answer than what are your mental health problems? Um, And maybe a more honest one, you know, having trouble with my wife. The pandemic has driven me crazy. I am just so cooped up. God, I feel so lonely. How can you be a light for them? So I have a whole team full of people. That's the first thing. I have like 70 people who work with me. And in America, we have a very messed up system where insurance is like both hard to get and care is harder to get. And then many psychiatrists don't take any insurance. And it's there's this whole difficulty in just accessing any care. And a lot of psychiatrists do the same thing that a lot of health startups do, and they don't want to see sick people because, you know, you might get called after hours, and who wants that? So I think it's it's important that we understand kind of what we're dealing with and that some problems are really severe and, and should be treated as such. I think that leads to solutions that are not obvious if you start getting obsessed with, like, the nuts and bolts of why people can't get the help they need. So how would you explain that, still I think it happens something similar, it's shifting a little bit, but usually you will get, I don't know, to general doctor or physician, then to the traumatologist, and then he or she will say, you need to see like a shrink or you need to see a psychologist or a therapist. And usually the patient there will say, why? My knee is the problem. So something happens between how can I put the same amount of effort to try to talk about what's happening, what my emotions are, and what is happening with my knee. So I don't know if you have seen any change in that matter during the pandemic. Are people more willing to say other things? So I I see a lot of the opposite, because people who come to see me know they're suffering on average. That's not the surprise. What ends up being the surprise is I'm a physician, and I diagnosed medical problems when they thought they only had problems with feelings. So it's actually the other way around. They come to me and say, I'm depressed. And I go, actually, you have psoriatic arthritis, narcolepsy, uh, highly likely gastroesophageal reflux, and you have major depressive disorder, but also OCD, borderline personality disorder, PTSD. And that's a standard intake. A lot also about the body and how how we are feeling and 
I know that you talk a little bit before we start uh, recording yeah. about how sometimes the pains that we feel they can impact on everything and how we feel about our own self. Exactly. Sometimes it's so hard to get up in the morning. You don't want to do anything. You don't. You don't have the energy. You think life isn't just not worth it. It. I think there's a there's a pause that that we've been forced to take, and in that pause, I hope we do more ask like, well, why? Because anxiety is a little bit like dizziness if you're a neurologist. If you tell a neurologist I'm dizzy, they say, well, wait, hold on. Describe what you mean without using the word dizzy. Because either the room is spinning or you're lightheaded. Which one is it? And there are different paths you go down. I'm anxious. Yeah, but what's going on in your mind? And a lot in America, at least, of psychologists aren't actually trained to be so curious about what's going on in people's minds. Um, and I think you know, I do family therapy also. And quite a bit of it, because that's one of the most potent interventions I have at my disposal. And as a psychiatrist, I only care about what works. <laughs> so, you know, when I look at the problems I was faced with, I said, well, the evidence says therapy is good for this, therapy is good for this, therapy is good for this, therapy is good for this. This is the one thing it's not good for. Uh oh, I'm going to need to have some therapists to back me up. And, you know, not everything is solvable with a pill. But understanding is, is the really crucial first part and understanding what the limits are of what you can do and what you can do together. In no other area of human endeavor do we say, well, let's let one guy just do it. <laughs> in neurosurgery, there's one guy in there. He's going to handle the anesthesia, the cutting, the whole deal. He's good. You should trust him. He's got, he really likes to cut, but he's good. Right. Whereas you go into an actual operating room and there's an anesthesiologist and a you know, tech and both. It's a whole team to deal with a brain problem. And, and I feel that mental health is actually really similar because some brain problems are just as serious as brain cancer. And therapy is one of the most important interventions we have for lots of things. For suicidality, it's the best. Also thinking about the word curiosity, I think that one is huge in this, in this idea and also in, a, in uncertainty. If we can manage to be a little bit more curious about our, the uncertainty that we are living, it's a way to not fear not having the control as well. Because sometimes we want to know, and maybe it's your experience, but sometimes to me that I'm a psychologist, and in Chile that means that uh, I will be the first one usually when people are in public health to come to, but I cannot give a precise diagnosis because that has to be a medic. But people will oh. come to me and they will say, what do I have? And they haven't even started speaking. They will just, yeah, tell me, what do I have? I need to know because that will give me peace of mind, I need to know if it's depression, I need to know if it's anxiety. And those kind of also maybe be a little bit bigger, but they decrease the uncertainty. So they're asking for the answer before. Because it's also this idea that psychologists can read your mind. So they're like, okay, so you are the expert, tell me what's happening. How, how often do you actually just know the answer, relatively speaking? You're not allowed to give it, but you have a pretty good sense. Yeah, so it depends a lot on the context. Sometimes also a diagnosis can be very restrictive to a person. If you say, okay, I think it could be depression, no. then that can mean that they can be fired from the job maybe. Uh, it will have a lot of repercussions to that person. Right. And, and this is where I like problems better than <laughs> mental health problems. Like, what are my problems? Well, here's my understanding. And often I'll write it down for them in what we call a formulation and say, so, you know, when you came to see me, it was because X, Y, Z, as I understood it. And let me know if I'm getting this right, that you were PQR. Is that it? Question mark. And then I let them edit that document with me. 
and so you know i think we we did i i have a, a copy of a fake dsm the diagnostic and statistical manual in my office which is actually an art project made by a patient and he took every one of the 764 ways you can meet criteria for major depressive disorder and made them a separate diagnostic entity which created an eight volume set <laughs> and he gave me one of the volumes as a gift but there's an arbitrariness to diagnosis, which we have to admit, it's a book of metaphors. And we've repurposed those metaphors to classify where someone can work, what they can get paid for, what resources are available, which is a misuse of metaphor, but it's what we're stuck with. And so is a diagnosis helpful? Well, in as much as it's helpful, sure. Does that give us access to what we could or should do maybe? And to the degree that it's not helpful, let's just set it aside. That's when certainty can be a good thing. At the same time, I'm not a diagnostic anarchist. Like OCD matters, right? Getting that, getting that right. Bipolar disorder, it matters if it's that versus something else because you do different things. And also you can't know for sure because all these things have time as a component and some of the things haven't happened yet. I was wondering, how was your experience maybe as a patient, maybe with medical doctors or I don't know if you have ever been to psychological therapy or family therapy? I, yes. Yeah. So I, I, I have bipolar disorder. And uh, when I was 16 years old, I saw a physician for the first time. I've been seeing my, my current psychiatrist since I was 20. Uh, he's done a good job. Previously saw the president of the American Psychiatric Association as a patient in a research study. Uh, I later got a lumbar puncture from J. John Mann, one of the world's leading suicide researchers, I later learned and got to see a presentation from Ramin Parsi, the chair at Stony Brook, presenting a data set I was in when I was a resident physician. And then I went up and said hi 20 years later, and he recognized me. <laughs> and I'm like 50 pounds heavier and have a beard and all this stuff. And he's like, Owen, you're good. This guy, look at that. And I think that's the, the really interesting thing about psychiatry as a medical specialty, which is different from, I think, being a psychologist, is you have all these other medical things you kind of go through on the way, and you end up choosing to be a doctor of the mind, as opposed to knowing that's the thing you're going to do the whole time. And you choose essentially to learn all these other things that you then think you're forsaking but aren't. <laughs> if you're doing it right. And and you have this whole different way of thinking because practically speaking, at the end of the visit or whatever it happens to be, you got to make a call. Do I do or not do? And often with psychology or other psychological disciplines, social work, I'll see you next week is the answer to what you're going to do. Not that I'm not also a therapist and do just therapy with some people and teach therapy because it's important. But there is a what am I going to do-ness which is both a blessing and a curse, I think, if you're trained as a physician. Owen, and what was your motivation to become a doctor and also a psychiatrist and to specialize in children that you... Well, I was sitting in my psychiatrist's office and I said, I can't possibly go to med school. What if I get depressed again? And he said, yeah, but if you get depressed again, we'll deal with it like we did before. And I went, oh, well, that's an option. And that's how I decided I could go to medical school. Because someone I trusted said, yeah, you could probably do this and don't worry too much. Yeah. And that's the power of a therapeutic relationship. Yeah, is someone can say one or two words, which sound like a throwaway to them. They will remember forever. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that phrase is very important, like the therapeutic alliance mm -hmm. and, and how that, I think it was okay that he said that maybe it will have a different impact if a friend told you that, like, yes. yeah, you can do it. Sometimes <laughs> I do what my therapist says. Even if my mother told me that 
like two months ago <laughs> because she's a therapist. I mean, probably she knows me better in some areas of my life than my than even my friends or my mom because I'm so connected with her. The vinculo, how do you say that? The, uh, yeah, it's the therapeutic alliance. The link, the link between the therapist and the uh, patient is so the bond is so is so important, so deep that maybe those words will resonate to you more even if it says uh, it's said by a friend or by a family member. That it is it is a superpower in a way. You know, having the ability to say something that and you don't know you don't get to know what it is in advance, right? You spend all this time building a relationship and the thing that actually matters is that you say you have no idea. And so for me it's a lot of trying to just lean into the fact that I'm not gonna know what's gonna matter. But something probably will. Yeah. I remember that happened to me with the client and I remember precisely because they they brought it up in like four sessions before, like after, sorry. They said, yeah, there was something that you said on session two that absolutely changed how I'm seeing my son. And I couldn't even remember saying that. <laughs> and I think that that's also very beautiful. Like yes. sometimes we try and I was training in that moment wow. in the master. So I was with a lot of eyes on me and I was thinking, oh, maybe I need to uh, apply this technique. And I was doing no technique that I'm, I was aware of. I just spoke my mind. Mm. And then in session six, I reflected, oh, maybe, yeah, I was trying to aim this, but it happened. Yeah. It just happened. Yes, totally. Now, in my life, it's been, I, I've taken decisions in the level of relationships, work-related, family-related, that has been influenced directly by my therapist. And I couldn't be more grateful about that. <laughs> And the funny thing is, I, I went to medical school thinking I was not going to be a therapist. I thought therapy was to, like, first off, I was bad at it in residency. I was really terrible as a therapist. Well, well, I was. Nothing just getting better for my patients. <laughs> and I felt I was very ineffectual. And I, I went, ended up going to mentalization based treatment training with Anthony Bateman and Peter Fonagy at McLean. And then. <laughs> yes. I'm so far away from here in Chile. I would love to. <laughs> yes. And and I ended up doing training. I did you know the basic training. I did ongoing supervision practitioner and eventually supervisor level, and getting signed off by Anthony Bateman as a you know I can create new MBT supervisors, which is the superpower of. And what I realized is that like the ability to teach people to think about things in a way that's realistic, <laughs> like you're not going to know, right? That's how you, you working together and holding on to uncertainty in a way that's tolerable-ish. Is my patient going to go kill themselves? Well, maybe, and maybe not. Is anything you do now going to meaningfully change that? Turns out that's an important question. And how important are you in that process? Well, some, but not omnipotent. I have been taught that lesson over and over again. I really have very little control of the situation. I do have influence. And the gods we worshipped in terms of medication were not good ones. We worshipped at the altar of 50% better for 30 years and abdicated our responsibility to get anyone well. And so when I started doing transcranial magnetic stimulation as a treatment and figured out that that could get people well, my brain kind of went, eh, wait a minute. And then they still had problems, like depression would be gone, but they still worry. And they're still, you know, hating themselves, whatever it happens to be. And untangling that bit by bit, figuring out where the change could happen it has been a, you know, a humbling process. Yeah, I was thinking how uncertainty and the word loss also apply a lot to, to us as the therapists or the doctors or the medical doctors. 
of letting go the idea that we can control everything that happens or that we have the responsibility of everything that happens to the people that see us. Because we sometimes get to see them once a month. Yeah. And we that. have influence. Like, I, I, I love that word, but that doesn't mean that everything is a weight for us as well. And it's a relationship. There's two parts, not even two. We have sometimes the family, we have the context, we have the team that you mentioned, we have the society, the US, Chile, that has different things. And, and I just wanted to ask you and, and to wrap it up a little bit of how has it been for you to, to understand that? Because I'm still in that process of, yes, I'm just a little part of this person's life, but I have a position of power as well. Sometimes they give me a lot of power. They tell me you're the expert or sometimes they expect something from me. But how has that been for you being doing these different techniques, having different roles sometimes? It, is, it has pushed me into essentially entrepreneurship. When you take the problems you face in people's lives really seriously, it leads you to explanations that aren't obvious. So I've become an advocate. I've become an expert at insurance law. I've become, you know, an, under, you know, a salesman. I've become an explainer. I've become a supervisor, I've become a manager, all sorts of things. In addition to just just being a psychiatrist, right? Because these problems are complicated and require solutions that require capital. And it turns out that like explaining stuff to people so they'll want to put money in it and being a therapist is the same goddamn skill set. Right? How can I convince this person that this problem is relevant to them and worth solving? And then what are we going to do about it? And so I've had a lot of conversations and I've learned how to explain things badly over and over again <laughs> in ways that aren't convincing. And then I finally found people who were the right fit, who heard what I was saying and it was relevant to them and it finally made sense. And I tried to surround myself with those individuals who, who got that these are real problems and were motivated to do something about it and had the access to resources to do so. And so I became you know, an accidental entrepreneur while I'm trying to figure out ways to just get my patients to have access to some help that doesn't run them aground and, 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 and into the poorhouse. Being a therapist is important, but having lots of access to lots of helpful people who are therapeutic is more important than me individually being a therapist only for the rest of my life, which I could do, but I shouldn't because I have the ability to do things that are going to work at greater scale. And I feel some obligation to do that, which is pretty heavy, honestly. Owen, we want to thank you for your time, for your conversation. It was very interesting. We, we spoke about a lot of topics. So <laughs> Life itself. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. My, my only regret is that I don't speak Spanish. I am actually a, a huge fan of Latin music. And uh, among the, the music that I played a lot of, uh, I was taught by uh, bass players from Peru and Chile. I think one of the nicest things about music is how it can take ideas from different, you know, epochs and parts of the world and bring them together in ways that are like kind of culturally tolerable and help us have that conversation about like the mingling of things in a way that feels less like appropriation and more like mixing in a way that feels better, I think. Well, we're trying to do that as well with the podcast, trying to mix different persons, points of view, um, nationalities and uh, occupations. So thank you for contributing to that. Well, Francisca, you want to say something? That's what I'm very grateful, and I really hope that everyone that is listening, if you want to participate in the podcast, just let us know. We have room for so many stories and ideas. Um, like Owen said, we can be wrong, and that's also a virtue. So come out, come ahead. Don't be worried. Thank you again, Owen. See you later. That was Sana Incertidumbre a podcast about mental health, self-care, and life itself with Sebastián Valdés and Francisca Venegas. 
You can find us on Instagram in at San Incertidumbre and be part of the conversation.